Right, this podcast is going to be focusing on the first lesson of Richard and John, which is looking at life in a medieval village. Now, what needs to be understood about a medieval village is that, obviously, in the medieval period, things were very different in regards to how people lived. So most people in England lived and worked on the land in the Middle Ages. And unless you were rich, life was actually a pretty big struggle. Ordinary people did face a constant struggle to survive, and life tended to be very short. So for those people within a medieval village, you're looking at a life expectancy as low as 25, and if you're lucky, as high as 40. So a medieval village was all based around one concept, and that was agriculture. And agriculture means farming. Now, the main types of people that lived on a medieval village were peasants. Now, you're going to look at this later on, but in medieval society, there was a hierarchy of importance called the feudal system. And at the very bottom of this system were the peasants. Now, overall, there were around three types of peasants. You had one peasant that actually had an element of freedom. They were called freemen. Now, they were very free types of peasants because they could do as they pleased because they paid rent. Just because we're saying the word peasant doesn't mean they're totally poor. Another type of peasant would be a cotar. Now, a cotar would work from one to two days a week working the Lord's land. And the worst off kind of peasant was a villain. Now, a villain would work around five days a week they were the property of the Lord, and a Lord could do anything he wanted to them, apart from kill or injure them. He could sell them, he could find them, he could treat them pretty awfully. Now, in terms of the picture of a medieval village, it's known as a manorial estate. Now, most peasants did live and work on these manorial estates, and they were made up of one or several villages which surrounded a manor house. And the manor house would be where the lord lived. Now, if the lord was away, which was very common because a lord could have been a knight, which again we'll look at later, then a bailiff would look after it. Now, a bailiff's job was to look after the lord's land. Um, Because lords held lands in different parts of the countries, bailiffs were really important to look after their land while the lords were away. So the lord kept some of the land for himself and then he divided it up um, amongst the peasants so he could uh, have it farmed so he could make some profit. Now the next really important individual, so you had the lord who was in charge of the land, the bailiff who would watch over the land, then you'd have a reeve. Now, a reeve would basically supervise the peasants, and they would watch over the peasants' work. Now, he divided out the work, he kept the, the accounts of what was sold, and he also collected the rents from the, uh, the freemen. So what needs to be understood is, that if you were a villain, if you were a peasant, you had to work. There was no disagreement. It was your part in society, it was your place in society to work. But if you were a freeman, as I said previously, you, would only, you wouldn't have to work, you'd only work um, as often as you wanted because you paid rent for your land. As this course goes on, the whole definition of a villain was changing because as time went on, more people were paying rent.
But what needs to be understood, the first thing, who were the people that lived on this land? They were the peasants that had people overseeing them. So the next thing you need to really understand is what sort of jobs did people do on the farm? Now, each piece of farming land was split up into three sections. One of these pieces of land was always left fallow, and fallow means empty. The reason for this was to allow that piece of land to recover in time for the next harvest. That's really important because the one thing people didn't, couldn't have in those days was a bad harvest because of the potential of starvation. Now, the three pieces of land were split into strips of land. Each peasant, including Freeman, had strips of, uh, in land in different fields. So they had some really good land and they had some really bad land. A problem with this was, is that some peasants' land might be miles apart. So if they wanted to work their land, they'd have to walk quite a distance to be able to do it effectively. Now, as a farmer, the sort of jobs you would do, you'd be ploughing the fields. Now, you'd be digging the, digging the field up to make sure that it was ready to sow your seeds. So ploughing, digging it up, de-weeding the ground. Sowing, planting your seeds. And then by the time of around summertime, you'd be harvesting the land, taking the crops up, ready to take it to a mill to make things such as bread. Now the type of crop really did depend on the soil that you had. Now this is obviously quite in-depth and it's sort of like farming understanding. But the different types of crops would be things like barley, wheat, rye, oats. They were all grown in England during the Middle Ages. And when the lines uh, harvested the land, they would take the crops to the village mill to be ground and they'd have to pay a fee to use the mill. Now, farming was very profitable in England overall. It wasn't just your bog standard crops that would be grown. So what needs to be understood that in the 13th century, the most profitable product in terms of farming was wool. And it made England one of the richest countries in the world. Some areas of the country, especially areas like the north, uh, were really ideally suited to things like sheep farming. Um, which links perfectly into the next bit. So just as a summary of that, <clears throat> you know the type of people that lived within a village. You know the types of jobs that people had to do within a medieval village. And now the next thing really is to understand what was peasants' life like. On the majority, it was pretty tough. It was hard. <clears throat> the types of places. So the peasants would live within the village. And they'd live in a very small house with a thatched roof. Like a straw-like roof. And these were known as cruck houses. The walls were made of wooden strips woven together. And they were plastered, not with cement, but with manure. And this was known as wattle and daub. So a mixture of mud and dung. They'd have one room to live in, very little furniture, floors would be covered with straw which was you know quite easy to clean but it could become very dirty and infested quite easily. And within these houses it was very likely they were going to be very cold in the winter. Another thing that the peasants would have to share their home with is their animal if they had one. So if they kept an animal, in the daytime, the animal would be outside grazing, so eating the grass. 
but at night time they'd have to be put in their house to keep them safe from people who would steal them or wild animals who potentially could kill them. Now in terms of the actual job, farming was very very difficult. They didn't have the same technology that we had today so um, when you were ploughing the land that had to be done manually with uh, tools that weren't really good enough. If you didn't have proper tools then the work was very physically demanding. If you were a peasant woman, basically you had no rights. They were controlled by the men. Firstly, they'd be controlled by their father. Secondly, their husband. When a woman married in medieval England, she became the property of her husband. And basically this meant that her main duty was domestic. She had to stay at home, caring for the children, cooking, spinning wool, weaving. Um, she grew a very small vegetable patch in the garden to look after animals. Uh, to look after the children and then also looked after the animals. Um, she would also help in time of harvest. Now what, what you'd notice is that peasants worked together when obviously it was really important, especially harvest time. Um, so a daughter would be expected to help her mother and obviously if you were, uh, if you were a boy you'd be expected to work the farm just like your dad would. Um, the children, linking back to that, didn't go to school. Once they were old enough, they joined their father in the fields. Um, they wouldn't carry out the hard task straight away, but they would clear the fields of stones, scare away the birds, and the older they got, the more physically demanding their jobs got. Now, the, well, one of the main positives for this is it wasn't all ridiculously hard work. Some of the peasants also could focus on uh, merrymaking. Basically means times where they could enjoy themselves. And... These were usually linked to either pagan or Christian festivals. And on these days, villagers would gather and enjoy things like wrestling, uh, different types of sports like archery. They'd be drinking ale, which is a type, you know, type of drink. And they'd have sort of games. So in those days, in a village, if you were a man that could drink the most ale, you might get yourself an award. Um, but the problem was... This didn't happen very often because ale was very expensive. So when they did enjoy themselves, then obviously they must have saved up for quite a long time. So in summary, life in a medieval town was not the easiest opportunity for people. Unless you could escape to a town for one year and one day, you would have spent most of your life in a medieval town. Therefore, it was something where your life expectancy wasn't expected to be very high. And if you were born into peasantry, the likelihood, likelihood is you would die in peasantry. Right, this podcast is going to be focusing on uh, medieval towns, which is the second lesson in the Richard and John scheme of learning. So towns were vastly different to a village. Now, there were aspects of similarities, but on the whole, they were a very different area. Now, in the 12th century, the period that we're looking at in this course... The towns went through what some historians call a golden period. Old towns grew massively and new towns were, were found because of some, something called trade. Um, and as I've said, towns would be very, they wouldn't be massively different in terms of their appearance. Farming would have still taken place, but a majority of the things about towns would have been very, very different <clears throat> due to the importance that they played in raising money for the king. So firstly, how were towns formed? So most of the towns were established by a royal charter. 
Now, a royal charter could only be given to, from, to a town from the king, and in return, they would get their freedom from the local lord, which means that the town had the right to self-govern itself. They would have their own law court and their own mini-government within the town. Richard and John would have charged vast monies, uh, vast amounts of money for this privilege. Now, one of the biggest towns in England was London. It had its own officials, and these men were called aldermen, who played important uh, important role in looking after the, the town uh, in law courts. And each alderman was responsible for an area of London. So because London was so big, they needed to separate these men uh, into separate little parts to look after the law and make sure it didn't become lawless, which means there was a lot of crime. And London was a special case because in 1215 they could elect their own mayor of London. So they really did get given extra power um, by the king. And the king at that time would have been King John. Now towns also were renowned for the different jobs that you could do. Now in a town you had to be part of a guild. G-U-I-L-D. And what these were, they, they were basically groups of workers who did the same job. So you could only you had to be part of a guild to so you could have unrestricted trade to t uh, unrestricted trade within the town and if you weren't a member you couldn't do your job and you couldn't earn money for it. Now in return of being part of a guild you had to promise that you'd pay your taxes as well which was really important because the tax money in those days would have gone to the king and that was a big way in which the king made money something called tallage which was a tax. Now, one of the most important guilds in the 12th century um, was basically the, uh, the cloth industry. Anyone that manufactured cloth, because the population was growing so significantly, it became one of the richest industries because people needed clothing. And on top of this, the trade, England traded a lot with the low countries, so countries like Belgium today and the Netherlands, um, that made England a lot richer because they were trading with other people. Now, a big question you might get is, well, why were towns so important to the economy? Why were towns so important to the revenue, the money of the king? So there's a few things you could talk about. Firstly, trade was controlled by tolls. Now, whenever someone made a sale or a purchase, tolls were collected which meant that there'd be money added on top. I mean, a modern-day example is if we have VAT added on top of our items. This money would go to the king, and on top of that, the king would benefit more the bigger the town was, for example, London. Also, tolls were collected when people used certain roads and bridges to get to towns. And th to get through town gates, they had to collect tolls for them to get through. And also, on top of this, any item that sort of came into the country and went out of the country also had a toll put on it. All of this money would go to the King of England, which means they're going to financially benefit significantly. On top of this, buying and selling was also carried out in a local market. Now, every Sunday, there'd be a market in a town, and this meant that traders... Traders would uh, sell goods on open tables. So if we think about car boot sales in today's society, that's sort of similar, but markets earn a lot more money. So the stallholders, the people that had an had a area to sell, they kept records of what they sold.
and people went around, officials for the king went around collecting rent off the table based on how much they earned. And they also charged people for the use of official weights and measures. So if you were a baker and you were selling a certain weightage of bread, for example. Markets were a huge boost to town's income and allowed some towns to become ridiculously wealthy, which in turn is going to benefit the king due to the fact that they were going to charge extra rent for the people who earned extra money. Now, the trade of towns also required building of roads and bridges. And town governments became responsible for looking after these roads in and around the towns. But roads did flood very often and they did collapse, making travel slow. So this could affect trade. You know, again, it's similar to today's, uh, today's society. If you get flooding in a town, then the business in that town is going to go down. It's very similar to the Middle Ages. Now, the towns that really benefited as well were ones with ports. Now, a port is where ships um, can come into the country. And these were crucial to England's trade because they allowed goods to be bought in and sold to foreign countries. It helped speed up, train, uh, speed up trade between certain coastal towns, um, which meant that trade could be done quicker within the country uh, because it was a lot quicker to travel um, by sea rather than road. And the last reason why the town made lots of money for the king was an annual fair. Now, some towns hold an annual fair as a yearly fair, and they were usually held on important years of on the Christian calendar, important days, sorry, of the Christian calendar. And fairs usually lasted several days and got traders from other towns and even foreign countries, so it was a big deal. It made lots of money. And the purpose, the main purpose of this was merrymaking. Sports like archery, all the taverns would sell mead, which was an alcoholic drink made from honey, and ale. And after all this merrymaking, the business occurred. Trade was carried out, including trading luxury goods like wine and silk. And the key thing about these annual fairs were you could only do it if you paid the king for a license to hold it. And this raised a huge amount of money for the king on tolls and rents for stalls and trade. So the king really benefited from this. Now the next aspect is what was life in a town really like. So life in a town, the key difference to the countryside was that all townspeople were free. And even if you were from a village, if you ran away from one year and one day without being caught, then you could also become free. This meant that you were, choo you were free to choose where you work rather than being tied to the land as like a farmer like the, the villains were in a village. Now Back to the job aspect, unlike the countryside, the population of the towns were employed in many different jobs. For example, people became blacksmiths, butchers, weavers, builders. And the way you do this is by becoming an apprentice. Now, you would be apprenticed to a master craftsman. So you basically learn from someone who was really high up in their trade. And you'd become an apprentice at the age of 14, trained between five and nine years. And then you'd be allowed to practice the trade yourself. This was a real good opportunity for children to work in different occupations, and women could also do this. But women also had domestic duties to fulfil. Um, women did support their husbands. Um, so, for example, uh, if a man was a baker, women might support them in the bakery, or their, or their, their skilled occupation like weaving. Very rarely, some women were allowed to join guilds, but it was very uh, unusual. Now, as we know from the medicine course, towns were very dirty, crowded, 
People emptied their chamber pots into the street and rain washed the waste into the wells, which would have caused things like cholera. Housing was built on narrow streets with shops at the front. And in those days, the shop signs would have been pictures because people couldn't read. Um, town would have got busy from around 5am. Shops opened at 6 and stayed open until 3pm. Um, some did continue till 9, but at the end of the night, a curfew bell would ring, which means that people had to leave. The town would be shut. Bear in mind, the town was surrounded by a wall and the watchman would look after the town overnight for any criminals that might be doing uh, things that they shouldn't be doing. So that's an overview of the medieval town. Right, okay, this podcast is lesson three on Richard and John. The role of a king. Now, the first thing you need to understand with this course is that the role of a king was very different to today's monarch. A medieval monarch was a powerful ruler who had complete responsibility for looking after the country and the kingdom. This meant that the character of the king was really, really important. If you had a weak king, then potentially your government and your country could fall apart. The king needed to be strong to control the people, to enforce the laws, to keep justice, and also to stop the kingdom from being attacked from other countries. The whole nation very much depended on the king, and this was vitally important. Now, in this course, obviously, Richard I is looked at as the hero, and King John is looked at as the, the incompetent king who really did destroy the country. Now, how would you become a king? Well, the, one of the main ideas was that in the 11th century, now the Normans, who were in power because of William of Normandy after the Battle of Hastings, introduced the principle of primogeniture. This idea means that the eldest son inherits all of the father's titles and his land. In this case, it meant that basically the eldest son would have the throne. So a legitimate child means basically if they were born to the queen while she was married to the king. If they weren't married, then they couldn't become the king um, because he would be known as illegitimate. Now... This idea didn't really follow through in history in, in the idea of kingship, but Richard I was the first king for more than 100 years to get the throne from his father, this concept of primogeniture. And this is why, you know, having sons in those days were really important for people to have a clear succession pathway. Now, um, prior to this, obviously people have been nominated, but this is different. Richard I earned his way to the kingship under primogeniture if the succession wasn't done properly then it could lead to a civil war so it was important that the king knew who was going to be next in line now when the king or when the person is identified as the next king they will go through this process called a coronation now from the moment a king was anointed with holy oils at his coronation. So the coronation is where he's crowned, becomes official. Once he's anointed with holy oils to prove that he's been t- you know, chosen by God, he took the title of Rex or King, and the king was given divine authority, meaning he was chosen by God and his subjects could not question his authority. Obviously that causes problems when the Pope wants to be a bit more powerful than the king, which happens later in the course. Now, up until in this course, the king's authority was very much accepted until 1215, when King John was presented with the Magna Carta, which tried to limit his situation as king, limit his power, and this caused the civil war when he went against it. 
So, what we need to understand in this course is what were the duties of the king? What did he have to do? And what sort of things did he do for display? So, the duties. Well, as we've mentioned, the king was the biggest decision maker in the whole of the kingdom. And he had to decide on foreign policy, which was what he did with other countries, and domestic policy, what he did within our country. But the king couldn't do exactly what he pleased. So, during the coronation, the king had to make a promise that he would protect the people. Now, that basically means that the king can't abuse his power. And in his, in his oath, he promised, say, for example, to keep the peace, promises to protect the people by making sure they're not greedy, and also to maintain justice, to make sure that people who com commit crimes are punished. Now, the king made the laws. He was the supreme lawmaker, and he had a duty to show fairness. If he showed favouritism, that could cause problems. So to fulfil his oath, his promise, the king needed to travel around the country hearing cases, basically a royal travelling court. And that's an itinerant kingship. This helps the king build relationships with the most important people in society, the nobles, barons, tenants-in-chief. And he would stay in their castles. And basically, the more he showed his fairness, the more people would respect him. Another really important duty of the king was to protect his kingdom and the people from foreign attacks and civil wars. One of the biggest threats to the King of England would obviously be Philip II of France. So a king needed to have effective military skills. He needed to be able to plan campaigns, direct his armies to choose the most capable leaders. And most of the time the king actually led the army himself. Richard I is one of the most um, standout examples of a great warrior. He led his men into crusade. He led his men into many uh, battles against uh, Philip II to try and reclaim parts of land that were lost while he was away. Whereas John, on the other hand, failed spectacularly in um, campaigns in Normandy. Therefore, he received the, name, uh, the nickname Soft Sword. So this shows he wasn't as um, capable as Richard, but also didn't fulfil his coronation oath, his promise to look after the land. Now... A medieval king needed to be seen by his subjects. That's his key thing. If you're not, if you're not seen, then, then people are going to doubt your authority. Um, and this was to reinforce the power that he had within his kingdom. So formal um, occasions were arranged to enable the king to show his face, basically. And the greatest ritual was the coronation, where the king was anointed with holy oil and crowned in front of the most important nobles and clerics, religious people. That was the most important ritual the king went through because it made it official, but more regular displays of the king's power were also needed. So the itinerant kingship was also important, so people could see him, people could learn to respect him, and also the king shows his power. Another key thing was the crown wearing. Um, now, basically that means that the king has to be seen in public wearing his crown to reinforce his authority. Now, the king would be seen wearing his crown on three occasions throughout the year. And this, is, this happened since the start of William the Conqueror. And these would be in important times of the year. So, for example, at Easter, the king would wear his crown in Winchester. At Christmas, he'd wear it in Gloucester. And at Whitson, he'd wear it in Westminster. These crown wearings were important as they were like they had feasts and they had a big get together afterwards. But the key thing is it encouraged people to be loyal to the monarch as they, it reminded people of his power, his authority and his sheer determination to be an outstanding king. 
So the king had many, many jobs to do. And what we need to assess during this course is how well Richard did it and how well John did it. So the next podcast is going to be focusing on the uh, why religion was important. Then we're going to look at the feudal system and then we're going to look into a bit more detail about the actual family themselves. Right, okay, now this podcast is focused on the feudal system. Now, the feudal system was a way in which the King of England in the medieval period basically controlled their land. It was a way of ensuring that there was a control over land, but also that the king had people doing jobs for him to enable him to make sure the country ran as smoothly as possible. Now, we've got to understand that England in this time period was a bit different. Compared to today, it was a really strange and foreign land. There was no real understanding of equality and these attitudes would obviously cause some problems in the 12th century. But basically, as an overview, the feudal system organised society into a hierarchy. It means the most important down to the least important. And these people would be judged based on how much land they held. Remember, in this period, the more land, the more power, the more importance. Now, when was it introduced? Well, it was introduced in 1066 after William of Normandy won the Battle of Hastings. That's not important to this course. But what is important is that you understand how it works. So, there's four strands to the feudal system. Firstly, at the top, you've obviously got the king. Now, the king technically owns 100% of the land, but he can't look after it all. It's a bit like in a school when a head teacher is in charge. They can't look after the whole school without help as there'll be just too much to do. Just like the king in this period. But the king would keep 20% of his land. And this was known as the royal land, the royal demesne. And this was an area where the king's royal animal would roam and the king would also like to hunt. In this period, the king would really hunt like hunting deer. Now, what did the king do? Now, the king obviously is at the top of the hierarchy. He is the most powerful person in the country and this is something we've looked at in previous podcast lessons. As a king, as a good king, you'd expect your people to be obedient, And in return, under his coronation oath, he would protect his people. But there's a problem. To do this, to protect the people, the king needs an army. And it was really expensive to raise an army of soldiers in these days, um, especially as they needed paying and they needed horses and weapons. So what does the king get out of this feudal system? Now, he gives land and tax concessions, so that means that they don't pay as much, that they're changed compared to normal people. He provides peace, law, protection. And in return, he will give land to a group of people called the tenants-in-chief. Now, these tenants-in-chief were also known as barons, and as we looked at in, in the religion lesson, bishops and abbots. So these tenants-in-chiefs were highly respected, The king would divide his land up and he granted some of his land to these people. And they held land, but in return, they had to do a job for the king. So the tenants-in-chief's job mainly was to get get the king of England an army. 
Their job was to provide the king with a quota, a number of soldiers, and to be able to allow the country to be protected. They also did provide the king with advice, and especially um, in regards to chan the chancellor, one of the, key, uh, the king's main advisers, that would usually come from the, the baron or bishop group. So they were very important to the king. They would give advice. They were um, very high-ranking members of society, such as the church, archbishops, would also be a tenant-in-chief. They weren't just there to raise an army. They were important people who helped the king run the government. But the key thing with those individuals were, is that they got land, they became a vassal of land, in return for providing the king with a knight service and advice. So just to summarise, so far, you've got the king, and then the tenants-in-chief. Underneath the tenants-in-chief, you've got the knights. Now the knights, as I've just mentioned, were raised by the tenants-in-chief. The tenants-in-chief had to do that to keep their land. Now, the knights were also known as the under-tenants. And what they had to do was they had to work, or they had to fight on horseback in the king's army whenever the king demanded knights from his tenants-in-chief. So the king would go to his tenants-in-chief and say, I need an army. Under their promise to their tenant-in-chief, they had to fight. They had to fight for 40 days a year. They also had to help pr protect the king's castles for up to two to three months of their reign. In return, they would get land. Now, there was a problem that the king faced. Obviously, it was very expensive paying soldiers. Well, how did he mainly pay them? He paid them in land. They would have received money from that land. But he also got the knights to pay for their own horses and their own weapons. Now, in a lesson that we've previously looked at, the knights were usually lords of manorial estates. Now, manorial estates would be the village, so the knights would also be in charge of a village estate, making sure that the peasants were doing their job and they were providing enough uh, income and economy and food for the country. So the knights, really important in many, many different ways. The peasants, now the last group, okay, the last group in the feudal system were the peasants. So the knights um, provided land to the peasants. Now the peasants would not have ownership of this land. The peasants would be lent this land and their job was to work on it. Now there were three types of peasants which we've looked at in our village lesson. You've got the, uh, the villains. You've got, which is your everyday uh, everyday peasant would work three to five days a week. You've got cotars who would work one to two days a week, and then you've also got freemen who were the the, the well-off peasant. Why? Well, because they uh, they paid rent. Now the peasants were at the very bottom of the hierarchy. They were a huge class, so uh, numbering around a million people. They really didn't have any power. They worked the land for their knights and the tenants-in-chief, and in return, uh, they would protect them. So, if anything, the peasants got very little out of this agreement, but they did get a piece of land. They did get a land, piece of land where they had to work. They didn't have the best life, and we'll look at that in a, in a little bit of detail in just a second. Now, in terms of 
how the land was given out. As I've mentioned, the king couldn't do it on his own. Go back to the analogy of a head teacher in a school. They cannot do it on their own. So the king of England divided his land into fiefs, F-I-E-F-S. And what a fief was, it was a piece of land that was granted to a landowner. Now, when the person gets given a piece of land, they have to pledge homage. This basically means that they have to declare loyalty to their lord by swearing an oath of fealty or loyalty. Now, when that person swears that loyalty, they become a vassal. Okay, so just go over that one more time. If you want to become a landowner of a fief, you'd have to pledge homage to your lord by swearing an oath of fealty, an oath of loyalty. And once you've done all that, you would then become a vassal. A vassal is someone who simply holds land. Someone who has done homage to their lord for that piece of land. Now, when you did homage, you had to do it in public. Now, the reason for that is it shows that if you don't do your job for that land, that it could be a pun- an, a, um, an action which is punishable by death because it's treason to break the oath. Now, as I mentioned, the king did keep land and most of the land was divided up amongst his tenants in chief and then they would be passed down. The land, the fiefs were scattered across England. The barons did keep some land for their their own and then subdivided the rest between their knights. Now, this did become some, this could become a problem to, to a degree. The reason for this is because if a baron had a lot of land, they could have quite a large knight and they could become something known as an overmighty subject. This could be very problematic for the king if a baron decides to overthrow and rebel. If someone doesn't do their job, then they have to forfeit their land. Now, this is where the, this is where the feudal system works properly. If a vassal didn't do their oath, then the lord could take their land away. So if a, if a knight didn't turn up to fight, then he would lose his land. He would forf- it was known as forfeiture. Okay? So, just to go back to the two groups, the two biggest groups that an exam board might ask you about are the, are the, the knights and the peasants. So the knights. As we mentioned, the knights would get their land from the tenants-in-chief. And this was known as the knight's fee. And the knights had to do a range of jobs. Serve in the army for two months at their own expense. They got their own horse, they got their own armour, they got their own weapons. Um, and if, if a conflict lasted for more than two months, then the king would have to pay. 40 day service in protecting the king's castles. Castles were very important to be kept hold of. And help pay money if a lord was captured. Help pay a ransom fee. Now, if a really important lord was captured in the medieval period, part of something known as chivalric values meant that they would be, uh, well, that a ransom could be paid instead of them dying. Now, how many knights were needed? So if you were a tenant in chief, the amount of knights that you got the king depended on how much you land. Now, this was known as the servitum debitum. The bigger your land, the more knights you had to have. 
So some tenants in chief had to raise 50 to 60 nights. Some of them had to just raise a handful. It all really depended on the amount of land they, were, they had under the feudal system. Overall, there were about 5,000 knights in England. So that shows that the feudal system was absolutely vital in gaining this protection for the country. The last thing to look at is the peasants. Now, as I mentioned, there were three types, which I won't go over again. But these individuals had to work for their land. They had to work for their lord. And their usual work was known as weak work, the ploughing, the sowing, the harvesting, the everyday farm work to make sure that the harvest was successful. In a time of extra work, a peasant might have to do boon work, which is extra work, and that would be a round of um, extra work around the harvest time. Freemen didn't need to work on the land because they paid rent, and the one thing that peasants did not owe was military service. It was the duty of their knight to protect them. So a peasant was never expected to do military service under the feudal system. So overall, the feudal system helped significantly in development of sharing land out, making sure the king could control his country. And if he was away, which Richard was for quite a long time, he could still have a structure which worked. <laughs>